Um, I would like to thank the uh, conference organizers for their generous invitation to this event, uh, which I will be using uh, quite selfishly as a launching pad for a new strand of my research devoted to cross-cultural exchanges through the circulation of printed images. I have examined issues of visual cross-pollination between France and England in the 18th century, and I figured that this conference would be a great opportunity to cast a wider net and to broaden my field of investigation to the Atlantic world instead of focusing exclusively on cultural <coughs> contacts over the English Channel, thus the title of my paper, Prints, Paintings, and National Characters, Washington's Likeness in a Transnational Perspective. I will start by perhaps stating the obvious, visual culture is material culture. While the linguistic turn has colored the historians and art historians' approach over the past few decades, we should also be thinking about a material turn, one that would require us to look at the materiality of visual representations and not only at the ideas or messages that they are supposed to convey. In this regard, printed images constitute an excellent field of observation. Prints were meant to be looked at, of course, but also purchased, exchanged, traded, and compared. They were objects of commodity capable of raising the cultural capital of a patron or a collector. People like to show their prints to their fellow uh, colleagues. But prints also could be used as a money-making uh, endeavor. George Washington, the main subject of my presentation, was well aware of those issues. In a letter to Henry Lee, dated July 3rd, 1792, Washington had this to say about portrait painters or portrait makers and their business. I have resolved to sit no more for any of them except in instances where it has been requested by public bodies or for a particular purpose, not of the painters, and could not without offense be refused. I have been led to make this resolution for another reason besides the irksomeness of sitting and the time I lose by it, which is that these productions have, in my estimation, been made use, been made use of as a sort of tax on individuals by being engraved and that badly, and perhaps he was thinking about those kind of images, and hawked about or advertised for sale." End quote. So for Washington, political starvement came at a heavy price. The venality of printmaking is further evidence in the letter, to, in a letter sent to Washington by Joseph Brown, a uh, print publisher from London, uh, in May 1786. America must forever look up to your excellency as instruments in the hand of providence who rescued her from the tyranny of a corrupt government. I therefore flatter myself, when these prints are seen on your continent, that the number of orders I shall be honored with will reimburse the expense attending the publication. At all events, I have unspeakable pleasure in paying this tribute of respect to your distinguished merit, merit which has rendered you the admiration of the present age and illustrious to posterity." End quote. While Brown's letter may seem tactless, he was, after all, writing to a quasi-head of state, 
The language he used illustrates particularly well the many advantages generally attached to the art of engraving. Prints could disseminate an original design by making multiple copies and spreading the likeness of any given individual uh, likeness to posterity. And if in the process profit could be made, well, tant mieux. It is striking to see a businessman of the British Isles lauding a man who was a decade earlier considered a rebel and now represented as a confident officer on the battlefield in perhaps the most British medium of all, mezzotint, better known in Europe as the English manner, a technique sharply contrasting the French manner, i.e. line engraving. The velvety and painterly qualities of this technique, and this is what you are seeing on the screen, the image on the left is the uh, uh, print being uh, discussed here. The painterly qualities of this technique are well evidenced in this impression realized by Valentine Green, one of its most admired practitioners. In many ways, this object complicates issues related to national identity, for lack of a better word. Here we have an American general, George Washington, represented by a fellow American painter, Richard Wilson Peale. The, the print itself is made, has been adapted uh, from an original painted by uh, Peale, who, Peale, requested an English colleague, Stoddart, to uh, add, adapt this painting in preparation for the engraving to be made by Valentine Green. Mezzotint engraver to George III, the King of England. So basically we're looking at the image of George Washington painted or inspired by a painting made in America, sent over to London to be adapted by a British painter and to be transformed into a mezzotint by Valentine Green. Mezzotint engraver to the King of England. The collaborative nature of printmaking tends to blur the lines, no pun intended, between national styles. In the uh, categories used by art historians, is this object American or English? I'm asking the question, so perhaps we will have a chance to discuss uh, this uh, question. And does it really matter in the end? <coughs> The cosmopolitan appeal of Washington's likeness is also revealed in a series of prints advertised in the Mercure de France in February of 1781. The French public learned that portraits of the main protagonists of the American Revolutionary War were available for purchase in Paris. And this is, uh, you're looking at two portraits taken from this collection, published in 1781. And for the very first time, the Persian public saw the likeness of several figures, many hailed as great men and heroes, whose actions had been detailed in newspapers for quite some time. The author of this portrait collection, Pierre du Cintier, a Swiss-born artist based in the German Republic, had his drawings done in Philadelphia, sent to Paris to be engraved. And this is, uh, I would say, something that was quite common by uh, foreign artists, Hogarth himself, when he painted this mariage uh, and advertised the uh, prints that would be made after the paintings. He said that those paintings would be sent to Paris to be engraved by the best masters in Paris, but in the end, 
Those paintings were engraved by French artists already residing in London. So the result is a series of portraits following a well-established format in France. And you have a few examples here. Uh, for instance, the portrait of Jean-Baptiste Marie-Pierre uh, by Augustin de Saint-Aubin and the portrait of Louis XV by Benoît Louis Prévost. So Cynthia's portrait followed the well-established format in France used for representing great men, a format which was itself inspired from antique representations of Roman emperors. The portrait displayed with some prominence the inscription uh, drawn from the life by Ducinciere in Philadelphia, engraved by Prévost at Paris, thus sporting an era of undeniable sophistication. Paris was then the capital of engraving in Europe, although London was slowly rising as a serious contender. Copies of Washington's medallion portrait were made across Europe, and complete sets of Ducinciere's portraits were sent from Paris to America, where they also enjoyed some success. In the advertisement placed in the Pennsylvania Journal, which you see on the screen, Ducintia mentioned that the portraits could be purchased at his American Museum, adding in the postscript that purchasers could now complete their collection of portraits. And this has to be the oldest trick in the book for print sellers. If you publish a series of prints, you want to remind uh, customers that nothing is more valuable than a complete set. <laughs> While Ducinciere's portrait of Washington followed the well-established and proven genre of profile representation practice in Europe, Nicolas Lemire's General Washington offers an interesting take on portrait and image making in a time of increased cross-cultural uh, connections. The print is based on a painting commissioned in 1779 to Jean-Baptiste Le Pen by Le Héros des himself, the Marquis de Lafayette, nicknamed the hero of two worlds. The composition, which shows Washington uh, in a military landscape, is lifted in large parts from a painted portrait of Washington by Charles Wilson Peale, uh, which is today at the uh, Brooklyn Museum. Here again, an artwork is being repurposed by foreign hands. The proposal for subscriptions inserted in the Journal de Paris provides ample details about the project. The painting is largely based on a portrait of Washington belonging to Lafayette himself, which Lafayette brought with him on his return to France. Le Pen was asked to make a historiated portrait of the general, in other words, to make him the subject of a historical moment suggested here by movement of troops in the distance and by the documents in Washington's hand, namely the Declaration of Independence and the Treaty of Alliance with France. Instead of inserting a Native American like West had done for his death of Wolf a decade earlier, Le Pen decided to add a slave or a servant uh, to mark very distinctively where the action is taking place. And in fact, when you read uh, the actual uh, advertisement placed in the Journal de Paris, uh, the, uh, the text refers to a Negro, uh, a Negro, uh, again, to mark the location. 
The subject was conceived as a pendant or a portrait of Lafayette, painted once again by uh, Le Pen and engraved by Lemire. And on the screen I'm showing you uh, some of the uh, many drawings Le Pen is going to have produced. He was interested in uh, representing uh, camp scenes and he has used some of uh, his own work to create something entirely new uh, for uh, this portrait commissioned by Lafayette himself. So this painting, which was made into a print, a print was also uh, made as a pendant to a portrait of Lafayette, painted by Dupont and engraved by the same uh, printmaker, Lemire, with the dedication line reading to His Excellency General Washington, this likeness of his friend, the Marquis de Lafayette, is only dedicated. So both works were meant to be seen as a pair. They were both uh, pendants. The bone linking Washington and Lafayette, America and France, was made through painted depictions, but it is mostly through prints made after painted models uh, that this bond could be visually visually enacted for the benefits of a viewing audience. As shown, for instance, in this uh, Paravant de l'Independence, or Screen of Independence, an object whose existence relies primarily on the knowledge of prints made after original paintings. And in fact, some subjects represented on this screen are known solely through prints. Uh, for instance, the images you see at the center exist as prints, they, they were never made into paintings. So again, the, the person who conceived this screen had a direct access to prints. This passage from prints to the world of decorative arts may seem to lead us away from the primary scope of this paper, but in fact it brings us right where we started. Visual culture is material culture, and in this equation, prints played a pivotal role as the main cultural currency connecting people, ideas, and visual forms. More than any other art form, printmaking challenges our understanding of national styles, so conveniently used by art historians. Are those categories still relevant in the age of globalization? And I'm not referring uh, here to the 21st century, but to the 18th century. After all, George Washington didn't wait for the internet to go global and to see his likeness becoming viral. He lived in the age of the printed images. Thank you.